Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hi, everyone. Um, welcome. Welcome, everyone, to this LSE uh, public lecture on the future of privacy, which is part of our department's uh, Philosophy Live conference series. And today we will pursue the tradition of the LSE's Department of Philosophy, Logic, and Scientific Method, which was founded by uh, Karl Popper in uh, 1946 and is renowned for uh, a type of philosophy that is both continuous with the sciences and socially relevant. So hopefully today we will uh, pursue this tradition. And my name is uh, Thomas Ferretzi. I'm currently a lecturer in ethics and sustainable business at uh, the University of uh, Greenwich. But until recently, I was an LSE fellow here at the Department of Philosophy, uh, investigating ethical challenges raised by emerging technologies like artificial intelligence uh, in workplaces. And uh, today, um, today, I've invited um, a few uh, experts on the question of privacy. First, uh, Ola Linse, uh, who is an associate professor at the LSE Law School and a visiting professor at uh, the College of Europe. She teaches and conducts research on data protection, technology regulation, digital rights, and EU law. And her book, The Foundations of EU Data Protection Law, offers academics, policymakers, and practitioners a coherent vision for the future of our right to data protection. Helen Palm uh, is a senior associate professor at the Department of Culture and Society at Lishoping University in Sweden. She conducts research on the ethics of surveillance in workplaces and uh, in migration governance. And her publications include Privacy Expectations at Work in uh, the journal Ethical Theory and Moral Practice. And finally, Alex Vohur is a professor at the LSE's Department of Philosophy, Logic, and Scientific Method. And his interests include the philosophy of public policy and the ethics of privacy. Um, he recently published uh, uh, on this topic a paper on uh, what makes personal data processing by social networking platforms permissible. So before we start, a word for the audience. So there will be a chance, a chance for you to ask questions to our panelists. For people in the room, uh, you can simply raise your hand and a microphone will make uh, its way to you. Uh, for the people who are following us online, uh, I invite you to share your questions through the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. And the instructions to use this feature are in the chat. So you are very welcome to uh, ask your questions. And when you do, please let us know your name and affiliation, and we are particularly keen uh, to hear from our students and alumni. So don't hesitate to ask your questions. And um, there will be a Q&A question for each of the three portions of this event, one on the value of privacy, one on uh, privacy in social media platforms, and one for privacy at work. So each time you will get some opportunity to ask your question. You can also tweet about this event using the hashtag uh, LSE philosophy. And uh, finally, this event, this event will be recorded and hopefully uh, it will be made into a podcast 
uh, if uh, there's no technical so first, perhaps, a short introduction on, on privacy. Why um, should we talk about privacy today? Well, my parents cared about privacy uh, mostly because they thought about authoritarian governments uh, uh, sending secret agents in East Berlin to spy on their citizens and shut down opposition, uh, like in this movie, The Lives of Others. And even then, the issue was not merely about embarrassing information that people would prefer to hide, but it was rather about the power that large organizations like governments can have over their citizens. And today, private organizations are gathering an impressive amount of information about uh, users on social media platforms, uh, consumers, and even employees in the workplace to engage in targeted advertising, to um, adapt their business strategies, and to monitor workers in the workplace. And there are new tools that allow uh, uh, this monitoring to be more effective, such as artificial intelligence, which has renewed concern for data uh, privacy. And so there are different ways in which these new technologies can renew concerns for privacy. First, learning algorithms can often require enormous amounts of data to be trained which has fueled AI firms' thirst for personal data. For example, in 2017, the UK uh, Information uh, Commissioner's Office ruled that the transfer of personal data of 1.6 million patients from a London hospital to DeepMind, the AI firm just up the street here, uh, failed to comply with the UK's Data Protection Act. AI systems can also um, increase the capacity to analyze existing data that, that is available publicly uh, or that's been disclosed by consenting individuals to uncover new information about yourself or about others like you. And governments can use facial recognition to spot and target leaders of democratic protests. Political parties can team up with data analytics firms to engage in digital uh, tracking, profiling, and targeting. It can have an impact on electoral outcomes and businesses can uncover information about employees' work habits or sexual orientation, which could lead to discrimination. And so today we'll ask, well, what is the value of privacy and how can we protect privacy in all these different contexts? Now, there's existing regulations um, on privacy, like the Data Protection Act in the UK or the General Data Protection Regulation in the EU, and these um, frameworks often give a lot of weight to consent. Um, and for example, in the case of the GDPR, consent is one of the six reasons that can make uh, data processing lawful. So if uh, governments or companies get the consent of data subjects, they are allowed to process, uh, to process their personal data. Consent is not always necessary because there are other reasons that can justify uh, data processing. So legitimate interests, for example, governments can appeal to national security to engage in, uh, uh, in surveillance uh, to, to prevent uh, terrorism, for example. Uh, vital interests have also been used by governments to justify data gathering in the case of a pandemic. And firms can appeal to legal obligations, like the prevention of fraud, 
to exercise surveillance of workers in the workplace. But even if firms have the consent of, or governments have the consent of data subjects, these regulations add additional constraints. So Article 5 in the GDPR, for example, spe specifies that general principles applying um, to uh, data processing, even if uh, government or, or corporations get the consent of users. So for example, the principle of transparency uh, justifies that uh, data must be processed in a transparent way and only for the legitimate purposes specified explicitly to the data subjects. Uh, the data minimization principle specifies that they should, um, they should collect and process only as much data as necessary for the purposes specified. And other principles of storage limitation, integrity and confidentiality and accountability prevent businesses from shifting the data to third parties, voluntarily or not, and in particular by mandating efforts to prevent data breaches and accidental loss. So these are existing regulations, but as I said, the GDPR and other regulations allow governments or businesses to process personal data as soon as they have the consent of data subjects. And so some questions we could ask are the following. Uh, are the current legislation uh, sufficiently strong to protect, to protect privacy? Do they go far enough? Um, is individual consent sufficient to justify data processing? And are there different conceptions, physical or legal conceptions of privacy, that might require uh, stronger protections? So before I give the floor to our panelists, I want to give you, the audience, uh, in person and online, the opportunity to uh, participate right away. So I'll ask you uh, what you think of the two following cases. For the people in the audience, you can just uh, raise your hand. And for people online, uh, you will get a prompt or um, a poll. And the first case is Cambridge Analytica. And uh, it's a case that is discussed in uh, Alex Borgo's paper on uh, social media platforms. So um, we're familiar with the way social media platforms use our data to tailor targeted advertising, which can be useful for us to reduce information imperfections on the market. But in this case, in 2014, Global Science Research launched an app on Facebook which paid users to take a personality test for research purposes. And the app gathered uh, their profile data and private messages of 270,000 users and the data of their Facebook friends. And, um, the personal data was then transferred to Cambridge Analytica, that used uh, this data to develop targeted political ads. And global science research ex uh, access to this data was in line with Facebook's privacy policy at the time, uh, which users had agreed to when they joined the platform. And so the argument was that it wasn't breaching their consent, and that it accepted the terms uh, of uh, Facebook's data uh, policy. And so in these cases, in this case, in, um, in the Cambridge Analytica case, do you believe it is morally permissible to harvest the profile data and private messages of Facebook users for targeted political advertising? So while we wait for the questions uh, here in the room, uh, so who thinks that it is morally permissible? 
feeling is not. There seems to be a vast majority that <laughs> uh, 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 it is not. Although we can see already uh, some people uh, who are in favor of it. So I think that the poll is over now. So 13% said yes, and 88% uh, said no. Um, and this was consistent with the group. Now let's discuss another case. It's the case. Um, it's the case of human eyes. It's the case of employee privacy in the workplace. So existing privacy regulations uh, in the UK, for example, are relatively permissive and allow employers to protect legitimate interests and um, uh, respect legal obligations such as uh, fraud prevention by monitoring employees in a number of ways. So they can, for example, listen or record phone conversations, uh, even sometimes without uh, employee consent. Emails and internet usage can be monitored. CCTV, uh, CCTV surveillance can be implemented. And uh, employers can also ask employees to pass drug tests, bag checks at the entrance, uh, or even uh, submit them to searches. But today, we'll discuss a specific case, the case of Humanize, which is a service offered to uh, businesses to closely watch their employees. And businesses using this service ask their employees to wear a sociometric badge around their neck with multiple sensors, a microphone to record conversations, an accelerometer to track movements in the company, an infrared sensor to know who you face when you're talking, and also your posture uh, in the conversation, and Bluetooth to track location in the workplace. And then Humanize can conduct analysis on the data to test hypotheses about uh, management policies to improve productivity or employee welfare. And Humanize then sends anonymized results, aggregate results, to managers, but also personalized feedback to each employee. And this personalized feedback could perhaps be shared with employers. And so in this case, in the humanized example, where do you stand? Do you believe that firms should be allowed to use such data analytic services to gather and analyze data on their employees in the workplace? So in the room, who believes that it is, uh, we should allow companies to do so? Okay, a few of you. Who uh, doesn't think we should? Okay, again, a striking difference, more in the room than online. So online, it seems that 32% um, uh, think that this is uh, morally permissible, that we should allow companies to do so. Uh, and 68% uh, think uh, we should. Uh, so here, interestingly, a difference uh, between this case and the previous case. More people seem to think that um, monitoring workers in the workplace is morally permissible. So we'll discuss potential justifications for why this might be the case, uh, or perhaps reasons to disagree. So thank you all for your participation. And now, um, just before we start, an interesting uh, data point on this last question. Francois Coopers um, did a survey in 2015 uh, of uh, employees in the UK. And 56% uh, of employees said that they would wear a wearable device, like the one of Humanize, if it was aimed at improving their well-being at work. So 
if it was used for a specific purpose that they agreed to, perhaps, uh, but not necessarily otherwise. So now let's uh, open the floor to our panelists and um, start with our first question about the value of privacy. So uh, I will just join them. Um, I'll join them over there. So thank you all for participating. And the first question is this. Some people believe that um, they have nothing to hide. And therefore, they shouldn't worry about disclosing their personal information. They shouldn't worry about privacy. And so my first question is the following. Why do you care so much about privacy? And do you have something to hide? <laughs> so we can start with you, perhaps. Yes, I think I have a lot to hide, but not necessarily of the very shocking or um, revolutionary kind. Quite often, I would rather expect privacy in terms of respect for rather mundane, trivial information, but, but still may be of importance to me, for me to uh, be able to um, disclose this information in my own way uh, for reasons that I agree to, or on terms that I agree to. And why is this uh, important for me to be able to control rather mundane, trivial, basic information? One reason uh, is that information that may seem trivial per se may uh, be perhaps uh, privacy sensitive when combined. So I may consent to disclose information A, B, and C separately and see all these uh, information packages as acceptable to disclose. But I may still not consent to an aggregation of these types of information together. In combination, it may, uh, it may reveal an image of myself that I'm no longer in control of. And the way in which different types of information is run together and analyzed and interpreted uh, may be beyond what I accept. So I think there are reasons also to be concerned with rather trivial information, not only uh, shocking, uh, <laughs> uh, scandalous information. Very good. And I know that in your research, um, you argue that privacy is a precondition to personal autonomy. Mm -hmm. And so can you elaborate a little bit on this? Why, why is privacy contributing to our autonomy? Yes, I would say that it's a precondition for uh, personal autonomy. We need uh, to be able to decide in matters that concern us, and we need to be able to, we need a certain scope for personal decision making and for autonomous action. And I think that by protecting privacy, we can actually safeguard this much more fundamental value, personal autonomy. And then you wonder what I mean by privacy, and privacy is a vexing concept, a multifaceted concept, and also um, what is privacy sensitive is something that may change over time. 
between uh, cultures, uh, also within a culture, people may have very different opinions of what is sensitive and so. So it's very hard to say what is privacy sensitive, uh, and this is something that is going to fluctuate over time. But still, I, I think there are general features. We can talk about different dimensions of privacy that tend to be of importance. Um, positional privacy is one aspect. We need to be able to, to form our opinion, make up our mind about uh, important decisions, and the decisions that we make should be uninfluenced, un non-tampered, and, and that is something that is of important importance, I think, uh, and intimately connected to autonomy. Also, I think there are certain aspects that are not so um, well protected, like bodily privacy, perhaps, and, and um, local privacy, certain spheres around us where we may expect a certain amount of protection or distance from others, and uh, informational privacy, and that's probably the type of privacy that is most well recognized and, and well protected. And taken together, by respecting individuals' chances of restricting others' access to them directly, immediately as physical persons, and more metaphorically, um, access to their personhood, I think we can safeguard something very essential, namely our conditions to form ideas of how we should live a lot. So it's, when I'm speaking about privacy as a precondition for personal autonomy, I would say that what's important is that we get the ability, the chance to form our own life plans, that we do that on our own. If we're under surveillance, sociologists tell us if we're under constant surveillance, we start to think of what those that are watching us want from us, and uh, we adjust our behavior in accordance to what we believe that others expect of us. And this is when we know that we are under surveillance, and we have an idea of the reasons why we are under surveillance. When we are aware that we are under surveillance, but we are not informed about why surveillance is taking place, then we will spend time to figure out the logic behind surveillance and adjust our behavior accordingly in order to gain acceptance and likings. And when we are doing that, we are adjusting our behavior. We are no longer in control of ourselves. So in that sense, we are losing uh, personal autonomy. That's a very good point. And clearly, if I'm at home uh, eating ice cream, I might take two scoops. But if I know everybody's mm -hmm. watching me, mm -hmm. I might just take one scoop. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Alex, uh, why do you value privacy? You naughty man. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, I also have plenty of things to hide. But uh, uh, like Elena, I'm afraid the things I have to hide would, would bore you. But taking a, a step back from uh, the the question why we care about privacy, we were discussing prior to coming here, what is privacy anyway? And it's difficult to define, but 
I'm going to be brave enough to attempt it here after a very brief discussion in advance and also picking up on some of the points that Aileen just made. So privacy is essentially about access, and our concern about privacy is about controlling that access. And it's about access to information, access to space, especially personal space, to our body, to our mind, to our thoughts, and some parts of our property. And these things together, information, space, body, mind, property, um, can be seen to constitute a personal sphere where we have strong interests in controlling access to the elements of those sphere. And these, these interests are, in fact, diverse. So I completely agree with Aileen that one major point is, uh, is autonomy because we want to have a space where we're free to develop our thoughts, our actions, uh, our ideas, and, and simply do various things without thinking what other people might be thinking of us. That would just lead to extraordinary conformity and a type of internal, internalized repression, which would be bad for the development of our personality. But there are also other elements. So, for example, the information I disclose to you, the space that I allow you to occupy uh, you know, near me, in my body, and in my thoughts, is part of intimacy. So it's constitutive of, for example, the fact that we're intimate friends. You know some things about me that others do not, um, that you can touch me in ways that others cannot, and so on. And in fact, I would not be able at least under the current norms of our society, to become intimate with you if it wasn't this type of exclusivity and within my control to disclose some things to you that I don't disclose to others. Intimacy is another thing. A third is control of self-presentation. There's lots of things that uh, I don't want you to know about me and don't want you to be thinking about right now while you're listening to me talk about privacy. And it's important to me to be able to control what you know about me, what you have access to, precisely so that I can get my point across now, for example, or get hired for a job or uh, seduce you. There's another element, which is avoiding market-based harm. So especially information can have value in the marketplace if you know how much that last <laughs> ticket to uh, the uh, Aunt Juliet musical is worth to me. But you can charge me a lot more than if you are ignorant of the price that I'm willing to pay. Or to take a case from uh, which was recently decided against Grinder by the Norwegian Consumer Council. Uh, Grinder, a dating app, was selling on information, including information about uh, people's HIV status with third parties. A very interested third party there might be. Uh, someone who provides health insurance, private health insurance, or supplementary insurance like travel insurance. They will be interested in the data about uh, people's HIV status because that may influence the cost or whether they have diabetes or other things they might be able to discern the data handed over uh, because that will in influence the cost of the medical services that someone covered by them would provide. Uh, you would have an interest in not disclosing that information to an insurer up front, for example. And then there's a variety of things that Thomas mentioned, avoiding risks of harassment, or discrimination, or simply social pressure to conform. 
So lots of things that are about this control of access to us and others' attention. But it's not just about one individual. Um, this is also something that, that Thomas mentioned. I have an interest in what other people disclose and in other people's privacy. So I'll give you an example. My dad went on one of these ancestry sites. This happens to old people. You know, they get interested in their ancestors, and so he handed over all kinds of personal data about us, including uh, a sample of his genetic material. My brothers, of course, and I were furious, not because he can't have this passion, but because he's just given them a lot of data about us. Half of my genetic material is now stored by some firm of dubious provenance somewhere. So this is just an example in which what I disclose may allow a firm to draw inference or a government to draw inferences about you. And so we each have an interest in what other people disclose or are permitted to disclose and don't disclose. And finally, the, the, the slide that Thomas started with, power. Um, information is, of course, power. It's the power to influence people, to sway people, to pressure them or uh, induce them, figure out what makes them tick. And if that information is concentrated among very few, either large firms or governments, that enable, that threatens the type of equality and freedom that we would like to see in society. So both self-interested and other interested, uh, interests that we have in privacy. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And clearly there's a plurality of reasons why we individually might value privacy or not. Some people might be more exhibitionist than others. Uh, but there are also these, these social reasons or these public reasons that we might all share um, to protect privacy. So I want to turn to Ola. Um, so how would you define privacy and why do you think it's valuable? Uh, well, maybe just to pick up on some of the, the points that have um, been made, especially with the, the question about whether or not you have something to hide. In some ways, if we if we took that as our starting point, which is obviously a controversial starting point, you would say, well, we're all here closed, and therefore <laughs> we have something to hide, or people have curtains, and therefore they have something to hide. And so I think by asking that question, you, you, you turn back to trying to find a definition of privacy, and I, I would tend to share something like one that Alex has mentioned around access to the person or to information. And um, so in the in the privacy legal scholarship, for instance, you see definitions of privacy as something like the degree to which human information, if we're talking about information about people, is known or used in a particular context. And so then from that perspective, you start to see legal frameworks that govern um, something like personal data processing, for example, as frameworks that try to structure appropriate flows of information uh, in a particular context. But then I think this begs this the second question, which Alex has also already alluded to, which is, well, who gets to control what is the soci socially appropriate flow of information or the accessibility of information in a given context? And so an example like genetic data is great. That data is kind of inherently um, relating to numerous people at the same time. Um, but there's also the category of, of data um, that you mentioned when you mentioned the, the humanized example, which um, a PhD student in the law department, uh, Catherine Nolan, would call kind of developed plural data. So where 
A company, for instance, aggregates the data of lots of individuals, all of the employees in the workplace. And so irrespective of whether or not you as an individual have consented to the aggregation of that data to be tracked in your, your movements at work, for example, you're able to tell something about each of the individuals in the workplace, irrespective of that personal choice. And so um, I think this raises the question of whether or not we protect autonomy by giving people autonomy over their choices, or whether or not we protect autonomy by making kind of more structural choices about the way in which information is used. And so you see this tension in a lot of data, data protection and privacy laws, where on the one hand, they try to give individuals control over their personal information, as I'm sure we'll talk about today in various contexts. That control can be quite flawed because of the environment in which um, access to information is sought. So there might be these information and power asymmetries present. And so um, control might be kind of a flawed way in which to, to enhance autonomy. And so perhaps paradoxically, <laughs> you need to go for something more paternalistic <laughs> in order to preserve autonomy for, for individuals as a whole or for, or for society in particular contexts. And so there's definitely that um, tension there between autonomy and, and paternalism that you see across privacy frameworks. Yeah, that's very interesting. And we'll come back to this when we discuss uh, social media. Um, now, I want to give the audience an opportunity to ask questions to our panelists. So try to focus your questions on this question of um, the value of privacy, whether you value privacy or questions that you have about them. So um, maybe uh, we can start with a question in the audience, uh, the lady. Or... Hi, my name is Anina. I'm uh, at UCL. I'm a doctor, so doctoral student, um, looking at how data is used in public policy and looking at the UK's response to COVID. Um, I was very interested, or well, I'm interested to hear if, uh, your thoughts around sort of this trade-off between the value of privacy and the value of human life when you're thinking about an emergency context like COVID. Um, and obviously there was the contact tracing sort of app discussion and, uh, and how that unfolded. So yeah, I'm very curious to hear if you have any thoughts around that tension. Good. Anyone wants to? Sure. So, um, you know, looking at this from, from a human rights perspective, you'd say we're, we're immediately into the realms of balancing of, of human rights. And I think that in the context of the, the contact tracing example, for, uh, for instance, um, the UK was one of the early adopters of the, the NHS COVID app. And so there was never a question, I think, um, perhaps wrongly, but that that app was going to be adopted in order to try to identify contacts for contact tracing purposes. But then um, the question is, given that the app itself would constitute an interference with something like a right to privacy, how do you make that um, proportionate? How do you minimize the interference to, to the least possible or to the least necessary in order to still attain um, your objective of protecting life? which, you know, instantly I would say wasn't kind of shown to be the case with something like contact tracing apps. So the very, the very use was, was questioned, but I appreciate in an emergency context there was a benefit of the doubt given there. And so a lot of the discussion then from a privacy perspective in the UK started to focus on things like data <coughs> minimization. How much data do you need in order to achieve that purpose? How long do you store the data for? So the initial NHS app never gave, I think it was a 20-year period that the data would be stored for, which clearly doesn't then kind of map <laughs> to, the, to the rhetoric of emergency. Who would be given access to that data? 
um, the, the initial policy was extremely blurry around that. Would it, be, would it be used for public research purposes? Would it be used for private um, profit-making purposes? Um, after, the, after the fact, all of those safeguards weren't in place when the app was still developed. So I think privacy there um, served a purpose, not of um, preventing the rollout of the app in the first place, but rather of ensuring that um, if this data was going to be collected, that there will be appropriate safeguards in place in order to minimize the interference with, with private life in that way. Thank you. Um, yes, the gentleman over here. Uh, my name is Siddharth. I'm from the Department of Law. My question is uh, uh, to Professor Alex. I just wanted to know uh, what, what are the philosophical justifications that uh, we could sort of rely on uh, when we sort of talk about protecting privacy, even when it doesn't serve an immediate uh, utilitarian or functional purpose, such as, for instance, when uh, we're relying on, uh, we're, we're trying to, some, the government is trying to rely on illegally collected evidence in breach of the right to privacy. Uh, and it's, it's supposed to lead uh, someone who's actually accused of, a, of an offense uh, into prison uh, because the evidence is actually incriminating. But you still don't want to use that evidence because it has long-term consequences. Good, very good. One aspect of what you mentioned is already, in a sense, about um, immediate consequences, like let's uh, catch a, a, a person who's violated the law, as opposed to the long-term consequences of the shift in power between the citizenry and the state or between individual users and a large monopoly firm that happens when we weaken privacy protections. So uh, in essence that the effects, the social effects of general rules which permit say, either the violation of privacy or um, the use of personal data under dubious conditions of consent and so on, um, it's very difficult to do a calculation about total social utility there precisely because we're talking about potentially systematic changes and shifts in power. But you asked kind of more concretely, should one think about this, I guess, in a purely about uh, privacy is instrumental to good consequences, or should we think about it as being partly constitutive of something independent of these good consequences? And I think Definitely, uh, some of the things I mentioned, uh, and some of the things Aylin mentioned, which is the, the idea that certain forms of privacy are essentially tied up with being an independent person who has control over your mind and body, the way that what other people know about you. I think that is so fundamental that, uh, yes, it's, it, it can contribute to your well-being, but even independently of its contribution to your well-being, it's something that I think uh, is so important to your personal sovereignty and autonomy that it has to be respected even in those instances in which it has bad consequences. Thank you, Alex. And we'll go now for an online question. Uh, if you can give the mic. <laughs> Uh, this question is from uh, Arshi, a student of global media and communications at, at uh, University of Warwick, uh, who asks, 
how should the Information Commissioner's Office in particular in the UK respond to these threats to users' privacy online? Well, so I'm not sure exactly, there, there are many ways to interpret that question. Um, so one would be, you know, do we, uh, so the Information Commissioner's Office, for instance, tends to prefer um, a kind of a responsive regulation approach where it engages with stakeholders, those who it's investigating, enters into a dialogue, tries to remedy things in that way. So some people would see um, that as the most effective way to secure privacy. Others say, no, we need to be a lot more firm um, in terms of enforcement. We need to use sanctioning powers and the power to ban certain forms of data processing a lot more actively. And so I think this is a question not just facing the Informationers Com Information Commissioner's Office, although there are a lot of questions being asked about the enforcement record of the ICO to date, but this is a question um, that more generally goes to how you can effectively regulate in a very dynamic environment where um, the literature on regulation isn't necessarily decisive as to which is more effective, the carrot or the stick, um, in, in those circumstances. Yep. Thank you very much. And um, we'll uh, give you, an, again, the opportunity to ask questions uh, for our next topic, uh, which we'll cover. Um, We'll cover privacy on uh, social media. And um, for this, uh, we'll focus perhaps on, on Alex uh, uh, first, because he wrote a, a paper on this, but we'll come back also to, to Elena when we discuss uh, privacy in the workplace. But on social media, uh, a kind of standard uh, framework or paradigm is the privacy self-management paradigm which basically says that the decision of how much personal information um, to, that, that is a, a given away to a social media platform in return for the benefits of the service that is provided should be up to the data subject. So each person should decide how much they value privacy, why they value privacy, uh, and then decide how much information they're willing to give up to get a particular service and the assumption is that uh, users have this right to privacy, but within this right also includes the right to give away information if they want to. And so their choice to give away this information is morally transformative. It makes something that was impermissible before, that uh, blocked the access from uh, outsiders to particular information about yourself, makes something that was impermissible uh, suddenly permissible. And so, Alex, you've written about this. And um, in particular, in the context of social media platforms, what are the obstacles to valid consent uh, that could undermine this, this privacy self-management paradigm? Yeah, good. Thank you. So each of us is already engaged in giving this type of consent uh, uh, probably dozens of times a day. A number of you may have uh, already moved on to YouTube in the course of this uh, talk and uh, have given consent to uh, tracking you while you're watching cat videos or anything else uh, during, during this session. So what would make that consent to track you and gather your uh, data online and maintain, perhaps sell on, uh, maintain in the database and sell on the data that is collected through your, uh, either disclosed by you or revealed by you in your online activity? A standard answer 
least in this privacy self-management paradigm, is your consent. But we all know that consent in and of itself is not enough. The consent has to be informed. You must know what you're engaged in. And um, some uh, must be free, so free from manipulation. And it also must involve a degree of understanding. You must not merely have access to information about what you're doing. You must be able to arrive at a reasonable understanding of the upsides and the downsides, the pros and cons of what you're engaged in. And on each of these dimensions of informed consent, freedom from manipulation, really having access to the relevant information and being able to take in that information and appreciate its significance, I think we're in a very bad position. Firstly, the information in question, the terms and conditions that we're agreeing to are extremely long and complex. Even if we have access to them, they're always on some link somewhere. Uh, I'd better show of hands in this audience on who actually accesses them, let alone reads them, would yield maybe one uh, hand, and that would be the person writing the PhD at the top, and nobody else. The second so lack of information, even if we spent the time on reading this, so even if we had this information in front of us and tried to take it in, developing an understanding of what it is that we're transmitting and giving permission over to another party and understanding the impact that this might have on our lives is extremely difficult, partly because we're in a very dynamic environment. One bit of information, for example, early study revealed something, which uh, is also true of me. If you really like on Facebook, uh, if you had uh, liked Desperate Housewives, especially the character of Brie, who was one of my favorite characters, trust but verify is my, my motto in relation to my students' essays. Um, if I had liked it, this would have uh, made possible for someone who's gathered lots of data on people's Facebook profiles to infer my sexual orientation. More likely than not that I'm gay, if, I like, if I'm a man and I like breed. Now, could I ever have imagined that this was a consequence of liking some part of Desperate Housewives on Facebook? No. In fact, Facebook didn't know it. It took a team of researchers from Cambridge to draw this inference using big data analytics. Now, it means that appreciating the significance of what I'm handing over is extremely difficult. So lack of information, lack of understanding. Third, manipulability. We're extremely manipulable online. We're subject to all kinds of biases, like, for example, default bias. Whoever changes the default settings? Very few people. A study I recently read, you know, your bank is also tracking you and wants to know what you're, uh, all kinds of things about your information. Uh, and your spending habits, fewer than 2% of people have ever changed their uh, privacy settings in their online banking. I've never even accessed mine. So uh, we're extremely susceptible to, say, defaults, to the way information is presented to us, to other aspects of framing. And we are not knowledgeable about our own psychology in this, res in this respect. But the counterparty is. Whoever is gathering this information in return for services has reams and reams of psychology graduates working hard 
ensure that the way they present choice, the choice architecture to us, the choices we can make, is maximally disclosure uh, uh, inducing. So none of the elements that normally are constitutive of valid consent, I think, are true of us in our online environment. And then the major question is, how should we deal with that in response? I think that sets up the problem. Um, I'll let you want to jump in on this question. Yeah, so, so, so maybe just to, again, follow up on, on what Alex has just said about, about the, the limits, and in many ways the impossibility, of a model of, of privacy self-management. So the, the legal literature has also kind of been trying to highlight the, some of the flaws around the notion of consent. But again, um, there's a bind in the literature because you don't want to fully, because, because a lot of our privacy frameworks are generally applicable. So just as they apply to a big tech platform like Meta, they also apply to your um, interactions with your university or to, with your local doctor. And in those contexts, consent might be a more appropriate legal basis. Um, and so I think a lot of the, the legal literature here has kind of pivoted to say that if you look at the business models of um, many social media companies, it is uh, simply impossible in that situation to talk about consent as being legally valid consent. So um, they're kind of antithetical to privacy in, in that way. So just to take one example, um, if we look at the way in which the vast majority of online content is funded, that is through um, targeted or kind of surveillance-based advertising, which means that when you visit a web page, um, as an ad is loading, what is happening behind the scenes is that your user profile is being broadcast, so transmitted to hundreds and thousands of, um, of potential advertisers in a real-time bidding system. And so this broadcast of your data to hundreds and thousands of advertisers on an ongoing basis every single time you load a website <laughs> shows <laughs> that consent is not a meaningful concept in this context. And so, you know, what type of data are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about very sensitive attributes. So things like sexual health, sexual preferences, issues on substance abuse, very um, political orientation, all kinds of um, sensitive classifications or assumptions that are made about individuals based on their, uh, their browsing past, not simply on that website, but across most websites in the same advertising network. And so here, rather than looking at consent, um, a lot of the legal literature then says, well, we should be focusing more on the structural protections for privacy that you find in something like data protection laws. So um, at the very outset, Thomas had mentioned that uh, in a law like data protection law, you have to have a legal basis, so something like consent. You also have to have compliance with these principles that I already mentioned. And so something like the, the real-time broadcast of your profile to hundreds and thousands of advertisers you would say could never be compatible with data minimization. It also couldn't be compatible with data security. Because if asked, well, what happens next with this data? The answer is simply, nobody knows. <laughs> and so in that circumstance, you also can't provide transparency because you don't know what's happening with the data. And so to focus on consent there is misplaced. We need to look at the, the kind of structural protections that don't place the onus on the individual to protect themselves, but then going back to the question asked previously, put the onus on regulators um, in order to try to effect, uh, effectively enforce laws around these issues. That's fascinating. And until now we focused perhaps on 
consequences for individuals themselves in um, disclosing their data. But um, we've mentioned already, and Alex, I know you mentioned in your paper, potential externalities of releasing your own data um, and how it can affect other people, as well as perhaps social consequences um, of, um, of the lack of privacy. So can you expand a little bit on how social media platforms perhaps like, contribute to these problems? Yeah, for sure. And uh, indeed, that's the other problem with this privacy self-management model. It, it's a bilateral model. It's you and some other counterparty to whom you're disclosing information and to whom you're giving the right to store, process, sell on, and so on, that information. And the idea is, it's yours. You can hand it over and let someone else do with it. And the only two people involved are you and this other agent. But of course, that's not the case. What's happening at the social level is that the information that I disclose permits inferences to be drawn about others, even if they never disclosed anything themselves. Moreover, because we're all disclosing, I'm not disclosing to you and then you to uh, one other member of the audience and then back and forth and so on. No, it's, it's asymmetric. Several very large agents, firms, among the largest and most valuable firms in the world, who are close to natural monopolies in their business, or governments, are the ones collecting lots of people's information, which generates, at the collective level, a large power imbalance. So this idea that it's just about me and some counterparty is a mistake because that ignores the social, the aggregative effects, especially of power imbalance and subsequent economic inequalities that arise as well. I mean, data is now, by some accounts, more valuable than uh, oil in the world. Um, so this is a hugely valuable set of resources, not merely economically, but in terms of power and politically, that are being concentrated in relatively few hands. That is something that you can only address collectively at the level of regulation, not by talking about individual consent, because my contribution or not to this makes no difference whatsoever at the collective level. Yeah, and so maybe if we switch to potential solutions, how you envision, envision potential solutions, um, both of you, Ola and Alex, um, if, if we have these biases that um, perhaps sometimes lead us to make um, unwise decisions about our information, and if we can create negative externalities for others, and if we are stuck in a collective action problem where we all release more information than we would want to, um, what are potential solutions? Does it mean that we should be paternalistic and kind of uh, impose privacy protections even against people's will? Paula, um, do you want to start? Yeah, so, so I think I've kind of already hinted at what I think is, you know, within the existing legal framework, the, the one, one option or one avenue towards addressing this issue, and that is to rely more on um, the broader kind of foundational principles around fair and so, so these principles, you find them at the core of most data privacy regimes, not simply in Europe, but, but elsewhere in the world. And, you know, originally they were called the fair information um, processing principles. And you're really kind of stripping privacy law back. If we're talking about informational privacy, you're stripping informational privacy back to those um, back to those questions. But I do think this raises an interesting issue about 
who gets to determine what's fair <laughs> in a particular context. And so, um, so far, I've been talking about the application of those principles by regulators. Some people might say, well, that's not particularly democratic. That's a very technocratic way <laughs> of, of envisaging um, what is a fair information, uh, an information flow in a given society. And so, you know, I would take the kind of critique here that, you know, by looking at human rights in that way, in this particular kind of institutional framework, you are kind of removing it in some ways from the realm of political debate. Um, and so what you could do, for instance, under these privacy laws is, is to adopt other more specific, sector-specific laws, for instance, employment laws, that try to strike the right balance between competing rights and interests in data. Because obviously, there's also a societal interest in data processing in many contexts, as you know, somebody asked in the context of COVID. Um, but you might, you might look at that on a more sector-by-sector kind of sector basis. So we might say, well, the general principles are there in a kind of an overarching framework, but we need to look at this in a lot more detail in different contexts to see what's appropriate. And Alex, in the specific case of social media platforms, I know that in your paper you argue that perhaps we shouldn't have kind of options opposed to users that are tailored to different kind of profiles. If you, you know, are a typical person with typical preferences, or if you want to release more information, um, so that it's clear what people are consenting to when they join the platform. Can you elaborate a little bit on this? Yes, a, a bit. I mean. I'm a philosopher with an interest in social sciences and in, in regulation, but of course not a regulator. So I can't ask, answer the question, what's the optimal regulatory regime? What I can attempt to do is to offer us, to propose a shift in thinking. Instead of thinking about a search for some form of informed autonomous consent, which for all the reasons that we're already familiar with from our everyday lives, we're not realistically going to get in this environment, we can reframe the question that we're after and think instead of what behavioral scientists like to call optimal choice architecture, to say the design of the choices facing us, given our cognitive and informational limitations. So given the type of beings that we are, not some purely rational uh, uh, philosophical type who has hours and hours to spend figuring out the potential consequences of their choices and disclosure, but rather the type of harried beings that we are with, with uh, all our problems, what ways of structuring our choices will typically be conducive to our interests? So you require in law not some form of consent necessarily, that might sometimes be what is most conducive to our interests, but instead that the choices that users face are such that they can be reliably predicted, given the limitations that they have, to lead to serve their interests well on balance. And then we can outline what those interests would be. That would be to shift the burden of proof. Don't, don't show that you're uh, getting informed consent. Show that you've created options that are generally to people's advantage then that's how you deal with the shortcomings towards the person. At the collective level, I think that's much more about uh, high-level regulation. Uh, for example, what data can be used for, say, can it ever be used for targeted political advertising or not. It's about competition regulation. It's about 
many other things that help structure these markets in a way, if at all possible, that they're not as monopolistic. Thank you very much. Um, so before we come back to Elin and the question of uh, workplace privacy, I want to give again uh, the opportunity for the audience to ask questions. So I'll start again with a question in the audience. Uh, Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Uh, thank you very much for your intervention so far. Uh, I wanted to ask Alex, I was really interested in what you were mentioning about how no one's really reading those consent notices on YouTube, about what you were just talking about there in terms of shifting the burden of proof, etc. Um, I mean, what I find interesting is that the, the algorithmic functioning on some of these social media platforms is fundamentally what is keeping us there. You know, we all know about the addictive nature that they're serving. And I mean, as much as I care about my privacy, I use DuckDuckGo, it is fun to, it's still not returning as good results. That's just, that's just the reality. So I mean, I do, I do wor worry about that lock-in effect there. I mean, most of my friends are shocked when they find out I don't have social media. How can you live without it? You know, that can't be an option. Um, but the reality is that I, I do see why people are on it and why they value it. And so what I'd be interested in, in your opinion on would be as regards those kind of apps like DuckDuckGo, I mean, what is the future of apps that or services that fundamentally have <coughs> privacy by design? Like, is it something that market forces? Is there one day just going to be enough people who say, well, actually, if you're not serving up sufficient privacy, then your, your company is going to fail because this isn't sufficient. I mean, I, I see a lot of ads with, I don't mean to sound paranoid, but what I would interpret to be a significant degree of privacy washing. So I'm never really sure, no matter how many times I click that do not consent, I'm still getting, you know, served something that I was talking about with a friend. Yes, you know, it, it's really difficult to not to feel like it's even really making a difference. And so I'd be very interested in your view on that privacy, the future of privacy by design. And if I may, um, Orla, as a fellow Irish woman, we can't get away from the elephant in the room here when it comes to enforcement. Uh, I don't at all mean to pitch you against our lovely Helen Dixon back home, but I would be very interested in your views on the upcoming proposal that we would be expecting from the European Commission by summer to fill, what, in their words, to fill in the enforcement gaps in the GDPR. And just, I suppose, you know, going back to what I mentioned there about market forces, I mean, not, not to be slandering in any way, but it seems to be the market forces that are almost prohibiting privacy from being you know, prioritized in, in our country. So I just wonder about where you see the future of that going. Sorry for taking up so much time with that. Well, two excellent questions. Thank you. Uh, Alex, do you want to start? Yes, thank you. So uh, as with regulation, I, I'm not the person to make, to make any reliable guesses on where market forces will lead us, except in the broad sense to say um, the incentives are not there, I think, because so many of the elements here are relate to a collective problems, the balance of power, um, moreover, the fact that these markets tend to be oligopolistic or monopolistic because there's increasing returns to scale, right? A huge investment in generating the network but adding a marginal user is not at all that expensive. And moreover, there's network effects, so the more people have joined, the more others want to join. So those tendencies are going to be so strong, I think, 
that it's very difficult to see how there wouldn't be this pressure towards uh, extracting from individuals maximum information, especially, especially given how suggestible and individually manipulable we tend to be. A, a further challenge, then, is indeed that um, some life is becoming increasingly difficult for people like you, and, and, and Thomas, I know, refused to have a smartphone. Um, <laughs> Now he can't even, I mean, it's good he's left the LSE because he couldn't even be able to log in to his, uh, to his slides anymore because <laughs> you have to use your authenticator app on your smartphone and so on. So the more these uh, services become universally used, the harder it is to do without them. And so to some extent, we may have to rethink, um, think of them in a different way, and some people are proposing to see at least some of these services as public utilities, and regulate them in the same way because they've become essential to a certain way of life. Now, that may also threaten innovation, so it's difficult to know what to do in these circumstances, but I would not predict that, that uh, market forces alone and individual concerns for privacy can overcome the challenges that we've articulated. Yeah, th and thank you for the question. So. I think I would both questions in some ways concern enforcement to me because um, I think at the moment it's very difficult for technologies and services that offer privacy by design, which by the way is a legal requirement, <laughs> and to differentiate themselves on the market because we don't see sufficient enforcement against companies that are flouting the laws around uh, you know the basic privacy principles. And therefore, for um, us as users of, of, of these services, um, there is what economist Joseph Farrell has called, you know, a rational disengagement. <laughs> um, we just say, well, they're all the same, and those who offer better services don't benefit. So then this brings you to, so what the European Commission has proposed in terms of um, minor reform around data protection is that at the moment, um, for serious transnational cases where a lot of different regulators want to have a say in the ultimate decision that is handed down to a particular company. Let's take Meta, for example. Meta is headquartered in Ireland. That means the Irish regulator takes the lead on that investigation. And there have been a lot of misgivings about the extent to which there's effective cooperation between the various regulators when it comes to making a decision. And so some have said, well, this is down to lax enforcement um, by regulators in countries where big tech has um, a strong base because of the lovely people and the great climate <laughs> and all of these other things. Um, and, and that's one theory for, for the lack of enforcement. Um, a colleague and I, uh, Julian Gentile, wrote a piece called Deficient by Design, where we looked at this um, enforcement system and in fact showed that um, there are many um, problems with this system, one of which is that EU law doesn't regulate the procedures in play at national level when it comes to enforcing the rules, which means that if you are the Norwegian Consumer Council and you lodge a complaint against Meta, then you need to engage with the Irish Data Protection Commissioner, but the, the procedure rules will be different in Ireland compared to Norway, and this can lead to all kinds of delays around dealing with the file. So what the Commission plans to do is to harmonize some elements of procedure in order to try to um, enhance the effectiveness of cooperation. In some ways, I see the problem as more fundamental. You, you see that between regulators, there is um, 
a divergence about um, the extent, for instance, to which data can be used or um, treated as consideration or as the payment for a service, <laughs> um, which is a really kind of far more fundamental disagreement about um, the role of data protection law and the, the limits of the regulator's powers in this context than you know, procedural harmonization would suggest as a fix. So I, don't, I, I see procedural harmonization as part of the answer, but not the whole answer. Thank you. Um, so there'll be another opportunity to ask questions um, uh, a little bit later. Uh, but I want to uh, turn to Ellen, uh, who is an expert on workplace uh, privacy and has published several papers uh, on this issue. And um, clearly in the case of social media platforms, social media have, uh, platforms have some power over us. Uh, but in the context of the workplace, uh, there is a clear and direct power relationship between the employer and the employee. And um, there's been an increasing um, concern about employee privacy because of the technologies that I mentioned at the beginning of the presentation. And so, Ellen, maybe in your paper, Securing Privacy at Work, you talk about the libertarian challenge, this idea that workers consent uh, by signing a work contract uh, to whatever conditions um, uh, are uh, in play in, the, in their company. And therefore, um, this justifies practices like workplace surveillance. How do you answer uh, this libertarian challenge? Yes, um, the libertarian would see it all fine that so many in this room would be willing to accept uh, this quite encompassing uh, workplace surveillance system. Um, and as long as you're all informed without free from manipulation or coercion, direct version, well, that should be treated as an informed choice, and no one else has reason to interfere. I would be a bit concerned about both uh, the procedure, the process leading up to that acceptance of these uh, terms involving encompassing surveillance. I would also be concerned about the content of the contractual agreement reached. Um, and what could I say to convince uh, the libertarian that there might be reasons to question uh, the acceptability of this assumed consent? Well, perhaps I will not change the mind of the libertarian, but there are certain aspects that I think are important to consider, and that's uh, the relative freedom to consent or to accept these terms. Um, I think we have reasons to be concerned with workplace surveillance for the reason that we spend quite a lot of time work. So if we are under surveillance, that is going to affect us in a most substantial way. We also have limited chances of not being at work. Uh, most of us will need to, to have some kind of remunerator in order to provide for ourselves and our families. Uh, so now we spoke about how we are somehow almost addicted to uh, social media and have difficulties to, to leave that. But 
There was a time when we lived fairly well without, so we could do that again. But when it comes to work, well, there seems to be a stronger necessity there. We need to be somehow like work. And therefore, I, I find it important to reflect on terms, conditions of work and our chances of, in an informed manner, uh, accepting these uh, surveillance systems that may be part of certain employment contracts. Also, uh, I've noticed that surveillance in the context of work is uh, increasing during the pandemic when a lot of people all of a sudden have to work outside their ordinary work site. Uh, employers were quite eager to find ways of controlling the activities, the productivity of the workers when out of sight. And post-pandemic, uh, that effect seems to linger. Many people, <coughs> larger number than before the pandemic, are working outside the fixed work site. And um, all sorts of systems, uh, devices are used to control that may be open and transparent uh, in some cases, but not necessarily always. So should we then accept, uh, how, how should we go about assessing these, the acceptance to uh, work under surveillance? One way is, of course, to say that, yeah, as long as people are informed, as long as no one has forced them, um, we should just accept they have entered this kind of agreement. Uh, but there I'm hesitant because I would say that this pressure to work and um, certain asymmetry in between employer and employees or potential employees will have a direct impact on the job applicant or the employee's chances of securing their privacy interests. What we should be careful about is to conflate an acceptance to work under surveillance with consent. Those are not necessarily the same things. We may accept these terms and conditions for the reason that we really need remunerated work. We need to provide for our families. Uh, and we may be ever so informed about these conditions, but still that may not be an expression of our interest in privacy or what we find acceptable terms and conditions. We may have much higher interest in a much higher privacy protection than what we actually managed to secure in employment negotiations. Uh, but the libertarian would then simply accept that whatever you have agreed to, that would also be morally acceptable. And to follow up on this, so clearly I think the example of, of remote work during mm -hmm. the pandemic is, mm -hmm. is excellent because this is a case where workplace servants actually invades your home. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the kind of private sphere of, of your home, mm -hmm. the public uh, or, or public sphere of the, the workplace is a bit blurred. But what would you answer to a librarian that says, well, you can have autonomy and privacy in your home, um, but then when you work, when you are in the workplace, you relinquish this, this right for 
I see your autonomy. So why do you believe that it remains important to stay autonomous even when we are at war? Yes, we do. Uh, it's a good question because we do give up a lot of discretionary power when seeking work when entering an employment contract. So why should I ask for privacy protection and, and to remain autonomous in the sense that I can choose uh, what information to disclose and claim a certain sphere within which others should not trespass or uh, where I should at least be able to moderate others' access. Um, I think there are several answers to that. One answer could be that it would, can even be counterproductive not to grant individuals uh, privacy protection at work. Um, it may be a question of sustainability. Uh, if you want your staff to thrive, let's give them as much as possible of um, freedom to to govern themselves, um, and that that could be one answer that it can actually be counterproductive to enforce enforce uh, encompassing surveillance. That's Several it. studies indicate that this is the case. If you are under surveillance and if you don't see uh, the reason for that surveillance taking place, so if you don't agree to the logic, so to say, uh, you start to trying to outsmart the system, evade the system, and, and that takes a lot of energy, and in the end, uh, perhaps the productivity aims that the support um, are not at all fulfilled. So that could be one reason. Yeah, that's a very good point. And clearly, we've been focusing on the moral reasons mm -hmm. to be concerned about privacy at work. But we could simply ask whether these methods work, whether they really improve productivity or instead if they uh, make workers you know, more aware of their, <laughs> of their behavior or, or shut down their creativity. Yeah, and also I think an answer is that we should as long, as far as possible, grant people the opportunity to, um, to be self-governing at work. Certainly, uh, an employer may have uh, obligations towards Third parties, uh, obligations towards the workers to secure their health and safety, and that may motivate surveillance. So it's not that surveillance is ruled out. There may be very good reasons for implementing surveillance, but um, what I want to argue is, once again, the burden of proof here should be on the ones uh, implementing surveillance systems to demonstrate that there is a good reason for that there is a necessity, there is a need for these surveillance systems uh, that they are effective, or at least we can, assess, we can assume them to be effective in order to promote the desired aims and that they are proportional. So that is, this kind of motivation is something that we should ask of to a larger extent, I think, uh, and that's probably the only solution that I can come up with um, in terms of how to solve this. And I have a question about potential solutions for, for your consideration. Um, so some people argue that, again, in, the, in this in the workplace, um, 
if some workers accept to wear mm -hmm. a badge, like the one mm -hmm. proposed by Humanize, um, and others don't, mm -hmm. then there could be externalities, because by wearing the badge, I can, if I wear the badge, I can reveal information about you. Mm -hmm. so some propose that uh, maybe we should have collective decisions within mm -hmm. a, a firm or within a team to, to give workers the capacity yeah. to collectively decide whether to use these technologies or not. What do you think of these kind of solutions? Yeah, I think the kind of solutions are promising that we need co-design in order to come up with a well-working surveillance system. They can be put to good use, but then definitely needs to be anchored in um, an understanding or a, in a framework so that those that are subject to surveillance can see the rational and accept the rational and Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, so we're a little bit out of time, so I'll right away open the floor to questions. So you can ask questions about um, workplace privacy, privacy at work, but also if you want to open uh, the, the floor to, to questions uh, in general about privacy, uh, you're welcome to do so. Um, so the gentleman here. Hi, can you hear me? Good. Okay. Uh, my name is Daniel, current master's student here at LSE studying information systems. Uh, so we talked about like the individual and, inf and informed consent and then the other end of the spectrum like legislation and like government protections. My question is about the space between. Um, so if we were to borrow from like the medical field for example and define a Hippocratic Oath for the people who design systems or things like that that handle privacy focused information, what would you expect it to say? Interesting. So, how will you design an Hippocratic oath for developers of, of these technologies? <laughs> so, I think, firstly, that's a wonderful idea. And it's, it, I think, on first hearing it, it's exactly in line with what I was gesturing at before that we have to shift from just getting a consent from the individuals to data processing to rather uh, placing the burden on the from asking for this data to show that what they're offering to individuals is going to be a value to them, um, even though they have decision-making flaws. And so some broad thing in that order, as in design systems that uh, for fallible people, uh, on, for a wide variety of fallible people, because we're all different decision-making types, um, yield positive value. And this value can be you know, multidimensional. It can be you know, getting a job, presenting yourself on, uh, on, uh, to your friends and family or to the world, and so on. And uh, thereby minimizing also the uh, harms in question. If you make that an obligation, I, I'm, I'm not a legal scholar, so <clears throat> I wouldn't know how you could incorporate that in, into law. If you make that at least an ethical obligation that's understood in the field, I think that would be a lovely idea, yeah. yeah thank you. Uh, any other questions? Uh, yes, so the gentleman here. I don't know where the microphone is. Um, here. 
Hi, um, I'm Cavi. I'm a master's student in health policy at LSE. Um, so I have a fairly specific question about an interesting situation that is actually starting with the NHS soon. Um, and essentially, the NHS in a specific locality, I'm not sure where, um, is planning on rolling out a scheme where they would do genetic testing on babies at birth um, across this entire region of the country. Um, I'm not sure when they're planning on rolling it out, but it's in the near future. Um, essentially, what is one of the things that's holding this program back right now is decisions on how to disperse that information, not just to the parents of the children, but to the doctors involved, what diseases to do that for, what diseases even to test for, that kind of thing. Um, I personally believe this is the next one of the next frontiers of medicine and kind of how you approach that from a privacy perspective I'm quite interested in, um, especially <coughs> on the topic of like how paternalistic you want to get with doctors actually heavily prefer them making that choice where they would have oversight on which diseases conduct the testing for, that kind of thing. But then there's a strong argument to be made that all information should be, should be given to parents and they should be able to decide how to disperse that information children or just, I was just curious to see what you guys thought about that situation. One of you wants to <laughs> jump in? Um, in, in the context of work, uh, there must be a strong case why genetic information would be needed since it clearly can uh, reveal information about individuals who have not had the chance to consent. So uh, there must be, I would just say that there must be a clear uh, sense why that type of information is necessary and what, in what way uh, is the employer in need of that information. So. So, so I'm unfamiliar with the scheme, and um, there are kind of particular conditions that apply to the processing of data in the medical context. But you know, my, my instinct reaction to that would be that um, that type of data processing is, is extremely unlikely without consent, unless you can show um, that there is a very specific um, public interest, a public health interest in it. So I'd be curious to know um, which region has been chosen, why, <laughs> um, what, and, and then you know all of those safeguards that I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, this also poses issues because we're talking about children's consent, and so in that context, the parents um, have the capacity to consent on behalf of the child. But obviously, that's a decision that will impact the child <laughs> in, into the future. So that raises, I think, very particular ethical issues as well as legal issues. Um, but again, I would want to know more about the contracts uh, that are in place there. So. What, what specifically is this um, very kind of speculative testing? <laughs> um, and if so, I see that as difficult to um, to reconcile with the principle like purpose limitation. But this, I think, is is um, which is the idea that if you collect and process data for one purpose, you shouldn't use it for another incompatible purpose. And the problem there, in some ways, um, and this is reflected across. Um, data analytics as a whole is that if you express the purpose extremely broadly, <laughs> so we're going to process this data in order to enhance medical knowledge, <laughs> then you could say, well, whatever we do with the data is going to be compatible with that purpose. 
but the purposes should be explicit and clear. And so particularly in that very kind of sensitive context, um, I think you'd want to be sure that there are um, very rigorous safeguards in place about the use of the data. I'll, I'll look into it. I haven't heard of it. Yeah, thank you for the question. Is there a question online? Um. Uh, thanks. Yes, so this was about specifically the creation uh, of a data management unit within the UK government that was established in 2021. And the question's about, uh, so viewing this unit as being uh, focused on regulating co large companies that deal with enormous amounts of data like Google and other social media companies. Uh, and recognizing that that is sometimes to increase profits, but in other cases to, to uh, protect consumers, uh, how the panel views the role of this sort of regulation unit that's been proposed in the UK, and whether that's on the right track or the wrong track. Yes, so um, I, I think this is um, an element that has been proposed by the Competition and Markets Authority in the UK. So they had actually done a, a huge study on, on digital platforms, but also on online online behavioral advertising, doing a lot of work on digital monopoly, where they had proposed solutions akin actually to, to those mentioned by Alex earlier about mandating certain choice architectures in particular contexts. And so the idea here, I think, was to, to bring in-house um, a specialist team looking at data in various contexts. So in, in many ways, that makes sense. I think in some ways, the more interesting institutional development in the UK, which is quite unique to the UK for the moment, there are some parallels in Australia, is that um, we start to see uh, that in order to, to kind of tackle the, the very multifaceted challenges that arise from digital data processing, you have the Competition and Markets Authority, the Information Commissioner's Office, so the Privacy Regulator, and Ofcom, the Communications Regulator, working together in what they call um, the Digital Regulators Cooperation Forum, where they're starting to look at um, common issues. So for instance, the use of algorithmic recommendation systems or, or um, algorithmic management in the workplace, those types of issues, they would start to try to look at them holistically to make sure that, to try to make sure that the different bodies of law and regulation don't actually conflict <laughs> in um, what they're recommending or how, the way in which the law is being applied. Thank you very much. Um, so before we thank our panelists, I want to mention uh, that if you want to learn more about this topic, there are a few things you can follow uh, from the LSE. Uh, first, uh, you can follow LSE Research on uh, this online uh, research uh, magazine, uh, Research for the World. Uh, so um, this is an important source of information if you want to know about LSE Research. You can also learn more with our LSE online masterclass on the ethics of AI, which covers um, uh, different topics in ethics of AI, including privacy and algorithmic management. And finally, uh, you can also learn about uh, CyberLaw with Ola uh, in the summer school, the LSE summer school. So the links uh, are over here. So thank you very much for your participation. And please join me in thanking our panelists. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE events podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.